Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. This week, game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly will review a cooperative game and have a related design discussion. Hey, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast, where today we are going to be reviewing Dawn of the Zed's third edition. And for our design discussion, we're going to get into rule books. I know we talked about rule books a couple weeks back when we did Aftermath, but that was more theme in the rule books. Today, we're going to talk a little bit more about the layout of a rule book. Well, and also how many rule books there should be, because this game has uh, quite a few. And I know that's also been a popular topic with, uh, for example, Fantasy Flight's two rule book system for many of their recent designs. Yep, absolutely. So we'll talk about what we like and don't like, and it may be very different from what you like and don't like. So, you know, we all have opinions on this one. I I think rule books are probably one of the most controversial topics in gaming right now, because a lot of people don't like them. Yeah, and uh, as as people who have written several of them, uh, we have our own opinions. (laughs) Exactly. All right, but let's talk about what we've been playing. How about you, Mike? What have you been getting to the table lately? Um, the last week or so has been almost exclusively Gandhi, the decolonization of India, which is my latest foray into the coin series from GMT. This is my third one, uh, previously playing Cuba Libre and Pendragon. And as you can imagine, this is, uh, about Gandhi <laughs> and, uh, trying to kick out the British Raj from controlling India in the early 20th century. And I've been really enjoying it. I'm getting ready to do the playthrough in a couple days uh, now that I've gotten like five plays under my belt, which for a coin game takes quite a while. That's why it's been a whole week. Now, coin games are are usually war games, right? Yes, there's arguments about whether they're war games or not. They're certainly historical games. I was about to say, because this is Gandhi. And when I think war game, I'm not thinking Gandhi. (laughs) Well, this is, I believe, the first one in the series that has uh, non-violent factions. Because coin games are known for usually having four, like, varied kind of asymmetric factions. And yeah, two of the four factions in this one can't really fight and can't... I mean, you can still remove enemy pieces, but it's, like, through convincing them and negotiating with them and that kind of thing. Which, uh, you know, compared to the last one, Pendragon, Pendragon was very much a war game as a coin. Like, you were just smashing each other, taking territory, having, like, sieges and battles. Uh, This one is definitely less focused on that and more focused on, like, diplomacy and that kind of thing. Well, and I guess Root has some factions where you're not necessarily fighting. I mean, you have the Vagabond running around. I mean, there is some warfare there if you want it, but not necessarily necessary for them. Sure. Yeah, so, I mean... Yeah, war game, that, that's why uh, Liz Davidson and I kind of like historical game when it applies more than war game, because that's a fraught term. But besides that, I'm still playing a lot of Rallyman GT. That's kind of been my go-to for both online, and I finally got my son to play it, and he really liked it. So, so far, I haven't talked about any co-op games. Let's see, what co-op game have I played recently? Yeah, this isn't one-stop competitive, cat. <laughs> yeah, well, it's also quarantine time, and it's hard to get a lot of things to the table. We played that Kickstarter game. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we played a Uprising, Curse of the Last Emperor. That's coming to Kickstarter mid-August or kind of mid to late August. I'm doing some videos on that. A 4X fantasy co-op game. That one's really great. And Tabletop Simulator has a version of it. It's not the best version. Well, yeah, I was going to say that they haven't updated some things yet, so I might want to wait. I would recommend waiting until the Kickstarter launches when I assume they'll have kind of the kinks worked out. But if you want to see what it's like and you want to read through the rulebook, at least it's available and up there now. Yeah, yeah, that's a good call. 
Hey, this is Future Peter here, breaking in. Just wanted to let you know that we recorded this episode a few weeks ago, so Uprising, Curse of the Last Emperor is now live on Kickstarter and will be for another half a month or so. Also, Mike's playthrough and preview are up as well if you want to get more of his thoughts on Uprising. And now, back to past us. Yeah, and I guess most of my co-op is still Tabletop Simulator and other online platforms, so I've been playing some uh, Battle for Greyport, Red Dragon in Battle for Greyport, great game. I played that with some people actually at our virtual gaming con, which we never talked about, but we had an online co-op gaming con a couple weeks ago that I actually played Battle for Greyport as well, and it made me actually pull out the physical version played it with my son the other day. I just remember how good that game is. That game is so oh, yeah, fun. It's, it's, it's great, and what, what a unique take on deck builders in a lot of ways. Yeah, and then I, I guess the last one I'll throw out is uh, Heroes of Tenefer. I played that with uh, you and Jerry, and then also been playing it some solo... Uh, that's a fun one. I'm really excited about the expansion that I think is delivering uh, later this year. That's another uh, deck builder, so kind of in a deck builder mode a bit. Oh, and I forgot us. Star Realms Frontiers, which is like the kind of self-contained co-op and solo uh, version of Star Realms. I've been playing that a lot, and that's uh, quite fun. I, I should have some videos out probably before this episode airs, so they'll already be old news by then. Well, I don't know about old news. This 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 stuff lasts forever. You know, that's right. That's podcasts right. don't go anywhere. Timeless podcast. <laughs> How about you, Peter? What have you been playing? Well, speaking of deck builders, I played some Marvel Legendary just on the recommendations of Steve and everybody else. So I, I whipped out the base game and then I bought some expansions too because I know everybody says you have to have expansions for that. So I bought some expansions for it, but I haven't gotten them to the table yet. But I played the base game and it reminded me of why I hadn't played it in a while. So I'm hoping that the expansions breathe some life into it. So I got Dark City, which is the first expansion. I actually did some research into which expansions to get. And then I also got the Asgardians as well. Nice. Looking forward to getting that to the table. And I feel like if I get Guardians of the Galaxy, I can get my kids into it more too. So so that may be the next step. Now, are you playing... Because the game's technically semi-cooperative, kind of competitive, but I'm assuming you're just playing it solo and co-op, right? Yeah, completely solo and co-op on that. There are several different variants, so I have played quite a bit of solo, and I'm trying to figure out. There's like two main solo variants. One's called Golden Solo, and the other one is just the Advanced Solo, which comes in the Dark City expansion. Uh, I haven't done Golden Solo yet, but it feels like I would like that better. Because it, it increases the difficulty a little bit, and that's still what I feel like that game needs. I haven't found the right level of tension for my skill level. And so, you know, when you play a co-op and it's way too easy, like, you and I believe in making it easy and then letting people ramp into it, but not so easy that you don't feel like you're doing anything or that there's no pressure. I, I know that's a hard place to hit, but that's my biggest problem with the game right now. And so I'm hoping the golden solo rules make it a little more challenging. All right, man. Well, good luck with that. What else is on your table? Yeah, and I've also gotten Atlantis Rising to the table. I know you and Jeremy did an episode on that, and now I've gotten a chance to play it some. Yeah, and did you want to throw your thoughts out there? Since I guess since we already did an episode, it's unlikely you'll uh, get the chance to officially review it. Yeah, no, I, I have enjoyed it. I've enjoyed my plays a bit. I think I enjoyed it more with you and Jerry as gamers. I definitely played it with my son, and I played it solo, and I didn't enjoy those plays as much. I certainly liked it, but it was one of those things I got really excited. I, I knew I called you and got really excited about it at first, but it kind of faded pretty quickly for me to the point where, I mean, I packed it up and ready to send it back to you. So 
it's it's not that I didn't enjoy any of my games of it, but it just felt like it got samey pretty quickly. I guess I didn't explore the different levels of difficulty either, though. But even in different difficulty levels, you're really just doing the same thing over and over, right? You're gathering resources, you're building stuff. Now, I guess some of the components will make the game feel a little different, but I didn't explore that enough to figure out whether that was going to make it feel different. But it felt kind of samey to me after three or four plays. Yeah, you know, it's funny, uh, just for those listening, Peter, when he was sharing like how excited he was, he was like, oh, the library cards are one of the main things that make the game feel different play to play. And I was like, I don't agree with that at all, but <laughs> I didn't want to tell you that at the time. I think uh, switching up the components does give the game quite a different feel. But quite honestly, I love the game, but I do think it needs some more variety. So I'm super excited. You know, I did a video of the print and play expansion that's uh, free or, or I guess pay what you want. I guess that's not technically free, but you can pay zero dollars and still get it, I think. They did this uh, print-and-play expansion that's kind of a teaser for an upcoming expansion that'll have uh, modular things you can put in, like monsters that have different special abilities like Medusa, and also like treasures you can build. So I, I, I don't feel like the game needs more life. I think it's great as is, but I'm certainly excited for more content for that one. Yeah, and if we get a chance to play that, I'd certainly like to get that that to the table. And like I said, I wouldn't mind even getting higher difficulty levels to the table, playing with our game group whenever we can get the gang back together again. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, let's get into Dawn of Zeds, unless you got anything else to cover. Well, I do want to thank some of our fabulous patrons. Our Patreon has been pretty hopping. Uh, we I just played uh, on Tabletop Simulator with some patrons uh, the other day. And we are uh, we're now having patrons vote uh, every month. They get to pick a game that me or Colin or somebody else will cover on the channel. And we'll go out and like find a copy or buy a copy and make that happen. So uh, coming to the widely available YouTube channel in the next week or two, but already available to patrons, is a play of Arcadia Quest's new official solo mode. I did a video on that one. So, uh, yeah, lots of great stuff on Patreon, and uh, for those who want to support us, we thank you very much. Of course, if that's not in the financial picture, we know how tough things are with COVID right now. Uh, you can also just support us by joining the conversation on our Slack or Discord, or leaving a review for us on iTunes, or subscribing on YouTube. Any of that stuff helps. But uh, I'd like to thank John Plow, who is a co-op fan, Derek J., who is a co-op fan, and Mark Blanchard, who is a co-op MVP. So thank you to John, Derek, and Mark. Thank you to all of our fabulous patrons. Uh, I really appreciate you, and I love the little conversations we have when we do uh, polls and just little messages back and forth. So uh, thank you for the support you give us, uh, allowing us to make better content for you. So with all that out of the way, let's get into Dawn of the Zed's third edition. And I'll talk about the theme a little bit. You're defending a town called Farmingdale, and... Zombies are going to attack you over and over and over. You're trying to survive as long as you can until the National Guard can come and rescue you from this zombie apocalypse. But Mike, why don't you get a little bit more into gameplay specifics? Yeah, so a lot of the gameplay mechanics are driven by these event cards, which uh, you draw one of at the beginning of each turn. And at the beginning of the game, you set up with uh, kind of increasing difficulty levels because the event cards are keyed to different levels. And they'll have these little spaces from left to right. Now, something we'll be discussing in our review and also in our design discussion on rules is the fact that uh, you have different difficulty levels and kind of complexity levels you can play at. So sometimes some things on the event card won't resolve. But just to go through them, you have what's called the 4R phase, where uh, basically if you have um, refugees, they move. And then if you have like these raiders, they might move. So uh, different like kind of, uh, and then rangers, different allies and enemies can kind of have things happen. 
then uh, you have to potentially eat some of your supplies. Then you have the Zeds phase, which is uh, one of the major things where Zeds spawn and move and attack you. And then the part of the game that's really the kind of core of it is the action phase, where uh, depending on the number of players, you'll have a certain number of actions and you can spend them on uh, these heroes and civilian units that are really your frontline people trying to uh, save uh, people, save innocents from the zombies, uh, fight back the zombies. And the key thing is, like, the zombies are advancing along all these tracks. If they reach the center of town, you lose. And you have to beat them back with uh, kind of these, like, uh, combat resolution tables, uh, dice rolls for range combat and melee combat. You have unique heroes with special powers. But that's the basic idea. You're trying to get through the entire event deck and survive long enough until the virus can be cured or the National Guard can arrive, what have you, based on your complexity level, uh, while trying to keep the zombies out of town with fighting. Cool. Well, thanks for going over that. Now we're going to go over our top five points, starting with number five. And what we do here is we talk about from our least important to our most important thing we think you need to know about the game. And I'll start us off with number five. And that's our design discussion today, which is the rule books. There hey, are five. For me too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we could kind of talk about this together then. I don't know that we've ever done that. We always uh, <laughs> kind of mention that the other person said it. But there are five rule books here, Mike. What do you think about that? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, five rule books. So I will say. And this is again, kind of getting to the design discussion. Something I like is that I do think every rule is in here. And not only that, but one of the rule books is strictly for clarifications on specific heroes and like specific cards. So I appreciate that. And the other thing I like, let's just start with the positives. Because <laughs> it is five rule books and you got to find the positives. The other thing I like is I do like, this is kind of a different topic in a way, but the rule books play a part in this. I like the choice of complexity where you can make this game, like, really freeform, just kind of like a fun Smash Zombies game at the easiest complexity and then make it super crunchy at the highest complexity. I really like that. Yes. That being said, five rule books. <laughs> so I can go over what they are, too, because I've got them here in front of me. So the first one's the basic rule book, and that's really only for Mission 1. Then you have what's called the Level Up rule book, which is the Advanced Rules, which is Missions 2 through 5. Now... Again, there's more than five missions, but that's like the different complexity levels. And actually, the basic level is level zero. So there's really six different complexity levels. So the level up rulebook is kind of the advanced rules. Then they have a rulebook for the setup and epilogue. Then they have another one, which we were talking about earlier, which is the dossier, which goes over every single character and their special powers and stuff like that. And then they have the A to Z's rulebook, which is kind of the comprehensive rulebook where you put everything in there. But boy, let me tell you, <laughs> that comprehensive rulebook is not written in a way that I... Like, Fantasy Flight has their two rulebooks, and the second one is, like, everything in alphabetical order and nicely laid out. Oh my gosh, the A to Z's rulebook, because they have these six different games, yeah. and they have to say, well, this one's in game one, not in game two, and it's only in game three and five, and oh my gosh. Like, that rulebook is kind of a mess to me, although at the same time, it has a nice appendix in the back, so that's a lot of times where I would still look up rules... But, gosh, I don't know. I don't know that I would read that front to back and try to understand the rules of the game. Yes, no, I agree. And I, mean, I do want to say, because five rule books might sound like this horrific thing, and I've heard people complain that this game is hard to learn, and it might be for you. It wasn't for me. But here's the thing. For this game, and, and we recommend this for a lot of games, like, I know everyone thinks we're gamers, we're veterans, we don't have to do the introductory game. We can skip five steps ahead. This is one I would say, never do that, okay? Just <laughs> right. never do that. Start at level zero and you've got an introductory... All you need to look at is the introductory rulebook 
and the like first page of the setup thing to see the setup diagram and you're good to go. You don't have to refer to anything else except maybe like the dossier if you're confused by one of your heroes. And then you can slowly add things in and it really only becomes like one rule book at a time you have to really pay attention to. I don't know. Was that your experience, Peter, since I didn't teach you this one? Yeah, and nothing's that complicated. And here's my biggest problem with the five different rule books. They could have combined the basic rule book and the level up rule book and the setup rule book into one rule book. Yeah, I and, agree and with even that. the dossier could could have gone in the back, right? Like many games have done this. I don't know why they thought it was better to separate them into different rule books. Because here's the biggest problem: it's physical components, right? Like, where did I put this one rule book? Where's this other rule book? If there, <laughs> if, you know, even a thicker rule book. Like, if it was just one thicker rule book, I'm not going to lose it, or I'm not going to like be looking through five rule books to figure out which rule book I need to look at. So I think. The organization isn't actually bad. I think it's not a bad way to learn the rules. I just think they could have combined them better. And to be honest, for me, the epilogue stuff, that that wasn't important at all. So they could have just left that stuff out. I don't have that as one of my points, but... I mean, I, I liked it fine. But yeah, I agree with you. It's superfluous. This is kind of like a little bit of extra fun uh, flair, you know? It's kind of like scoring at the end of the game. It's like, okay, what did you do on this track? What did you do on that track? And you have a little story for each one based on how well you did or didn't do. I didn't need that. Certainly, if you want it, you could have it. But again, it could have been in the back of a different rule book. And uh, I don't see the benefit of having them separated. And so that's my biggest complaint. But the rules themselves are fine. Like everything, like you said, is in there. I could find them. I didn't have a hard time following the rules, which is uh, an even worse sin to me than having five rule books is having one rule book that doesn't tell you how to play the game. Oh, absolutely. I mean, considering the last time we talked about rule books in detail was Aftermath, which is a good game, but has a terrible rule book, I would much rather read the Dawn of the Zeds rule book any day of the week over the Aftermath rule book. <laughs> yes. And again, that A to Zeds rule book has a lot of it, especially once you're to a game three or four, you kind of have to use that one for the most parts. Although, I think it's one of those things where not everything's in there also. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think I was like looking for certain rules and I felt like it was easier to find in the advanced rule book. But anyway, it's good for the most part. All the rules are there between the five rule books. They're certainly there somewhere, but I don't know that they all do their job the way they should. So that's number five is uh, the rule books are good. They'll teach you how to play the game, but there are a lot of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my number four is the cooperation in the game, which won't apply if you're playing solo, uh, just cooperation. And this is sort of the typical way that Victory Point games did co-op in their games, which uh, they were mainly a solo game company. So often they would kind of tack on co-op in that uh, you just kind of divide everything amongst everybody. Now, this isn't as bad as that, which is like how Darkest Night work or Nemo's War uh, worked. Uh, in this one, they do have uh, more zombie spawning and more zombie activations, but also more player actions based on the number of players. So co-op does change the game a little bit. But that being said, it's still really like you can activate whoever you want with your actions. So you don't really have like ownership or an avatar. Like you have a hero you pick, but it's not like somebody else can't have them do something so it'll depend a lot on your group. If you're the kind of group who doesn't mind kind of talking through things, it doesn't really have an alpha player problem, I think you'll have a great time, and this is still going to work really well for co-op. But if you do have an alpha player problem, 
if you uh, have people who really want to feel like only I can do stuff with this person and like kind of have like a, uh, you know, uh, territorial ownership of a character, this one might not work well for your group. So the co-op is okay. It's not uh, as negative for me as other Victory Point games uh, designs, but it, it definitely is not like a typical co-op and some groups are not going to like it that much. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. I mean, this game was designed as solo, but the rules do work, and it is going to be very group-dependent, whether you like discussing what to do with those group actions, and whether you like, you know, choosing... You're not going to spend your time being one character in the game. I guess that's a big part of it, and some people really like that in games, and some people don't care as much. You can spend your actions wherever you want, and so... If you want to feel like you're controlling your own character, you don't get that here. It's more like, oh, all the threats are on this track right now. We should probably do something about that. So either take actions with characters on that track or move some characters to that track. So it's going to be a lot of group discussion. But at the end of the day, this really, you could tell it was a solo design to begin with. So I totally agree with you on everything you said there, basically. All right. How about you, Peter? What's your number four? So my number four, we kind of covered with the rule books, but I'll cover it a little bit more here, which is the building complexity. I like when games do this. I agree with Mike totally. Don't skip steps here because each one introduces fun and important changes to the game and they build on themselves. So adding two or three things at once, what I think would be too much. Certainly there are some that that are smaller changes than others, but there are definitely things along the way that I think you should learn stepwise. Uh, and not only does it increase in complexity as you go along, but I also feel like each of the changes for the most part, is introducing difficulty as well. So at a basic level, the game is pretty easy to understand, pretty easy to play, very much even family weight at that level. But then as you add things in, I think, again, not only does the complexity go up, but difficulty goes up as well, which is exactly how I'd want it to be. Yeah, so Peter, I'm curious, uh, what was your favorite level to play at? Because I know what mine is. (sighs) That's hard. Like, I liked adding the 4R stuff in, which is the Rangers and stuff, because it doesn't add a whole lot of stuff. I think that's level three. But at the same time, you guys know me if you've listened to us long enough. I was getting overloaded at some point. There was At some point, there was just too much stuff on the board for me. So it, I don't know, somewhere between level two and three, I think, is where I wanted to go. Certainly not all the way up to the point where you got to go to the labs and do that stuff and put people in the hospital and all that stuff as well. Like that, that was a step beyond where I wanted it to be. And I, I'd never even made it to the underground levels. Yeah. And, and that's, that's right around where I am too. Uh, like I'm between three and four. So like adding in the labs, sometimes I do it, sometimes I don't. The thing is though, uh, the more you add in, the more cards you get to see and the more character variety you can have. So part of me just wants to play at level six and get everything in there, but then I'm kind of scared too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this reminds me a lot, and we'll get to this in final thoughts, of Spirit Island in that way, right? It's a game we love. It's a game that has a lot to offer. There's a lot of different ways to play it and a lot of different complexity levels. And I was just scared because at some point I get overwhelmed and the game stops becoming fun for me. And I always try to monitor myself so I don't push myself beyond that point of complexity. And that was one of my complaints about Spirit Island, too. And I think that's certainly going to be a complaint of mine here. Or, or maybe not as a complaint, right? Because it's good that you have more stuff that people can get to if they want to. But it did start getting to that complexity level to me at, when it got to higher levels. All right. So uh, going to mine number three... One of my favorite things about the game, although I think the two things above it are still more important to the design and whether you'll enjoy it or not, but that is the heroes. And I guess not just the heroes, but also the heroic civilians. 
So at the beginning of the game, you have four heroes, no matter what the player count is, and you have uh, one heroic civilian. And again, uh, there's not a ton of them if you're just playing at level zero, but as you go to higher levels, you get to bring in more of them where their abilities kind of interact with the new stuff at that level. And man, I just love this. Like, you you know, if you've listened to our reviews before, you know I like things that kind of give variety and give a different feel to the game. And I found that different heroes and different teams, and not just heroes, but combos of heroes, like ones that kind of have synergistic abilities, made the game feel really different and made it like really exciting to try out. Like, I know uh, in one of the kind of mini expansions you can get, I have a uh, horse. And when I got like one of my best melee fighters on the horse, because the horse lets you move around a lot and like fight melee better, I was just like a demon, like just like (laughs) dude with swords just riding around on a horse, just cutting down zombies left and right. And that felt super different than like the game where I could forage really well, but no one was a good fighter. And I was like barely hanging on with tons of uh, ammo attacks because I had enough ammo to do it. Uh, So yeah, I really love the heroes. I think it's just a really fun thing in the game and uh, gives it a lot of its variety. Yeah, I'll get to that one in a little bit. But for now, let me get to my number three, which is there's a lot of luck in this game. So there's CRTs or combat result tables, if you haven't heard of those before. Basically, what you do is you have to look up every time you're in hand-to-hand combat. You have to see who's advantage. So is it even fight? So I have five strength, they have five strength. Or do I have double their strength? I have five strength or four strength and they have two strength. Or am I triple their strength? Do I have six strength and they have two strength? Or vice versa? Do they have six strength and I have two strength? So you're looking up on this table, see which column you go to. They also have something kind of neat about this, which is if you have a defensive bonus, it's really easy. You just move over one column. So if they're three times my strength and I have a defensive bonus, I move over. So now they're only counted as having two times my strength. And sometimes people level up and it moves it over another column. So I really liked how easy it was to use the combat results table, but it's still a combat results table, right? You have to look on this table every time you roll 2d6 and you look on who's advantaged and it tells you not only how much damage each side takes, which is kind of cool, one roll resolves for both sides, but also shows you who retreats. And again, it's a tower defense game, so you're trying to stop them from getting to the middle. So the retreat part of that is super important. And so... I do like the way combat is handled, but I also think there's a lot of luck in that. There's a lot of swinginess. If you roll a two versus a 12, even if you're tripling them, I mean, there's no situation where you're really safe in here. And not only that, but I even felt that the supplies gathering, now there are certain certain characters that help you with it, but on a supplies gather, you are rolling a D6 and four and up gets you a supply and six gets you two of that supply. But there are a lot of actions, which I just wasted. And I never got anything out of because it's like, all right, I'll check to get supplies here. And you literally roll one, two or three and you get nothing. So, yes, there are characters that can mitigate that luck a little bit. But there are certainly going to be times in the game where you're not going to be able to rely on those characters or maybe you just didn't have them in the game. So it's definitely swingy, definitely a lot of luck. That might be a negative for some. It was not as much of a negative for me, so it's kind of a mix for me. It definitely felt exciting to have that luck. And I like the way the combat was resolved. And, you know, if you're shooting, I didn't even mention this, if you're shooting, you have a, you just look at your strength and you're doing damage to them and they're not doing damage back to you, but it requires ammo. So it gets rid of some of those resources you've gathered. So I like the way it all came together, but I know some people aren't going to w- want to look on a combat result table every time they have to fight something. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, maybe we'll flip flop with our number three and number two, because that's my number two. And I mean, I... I was kind of listening along, like ticking things off that I was going to say about the luck in the game. And I think you hit every single thing. I'm sorry. So I don't even know if I have anything to add. No, no, it's good. I (laughs) I agree with you 100%. Like, and and not even uh, not even agreeing with what you said about it, but also kind of your overall opinion. For me, I think it's generally good for the game. 
and I think it kind of adds to excitement and kind of a cinematic feel. And one thing I will add is I think it also gives the game more variety because if things were too deterministic, I would kind of like defend consistently in the same way. Sure, I agree with that. But with these swings of luck going different ways, like, oh my gosh, like this part of the board just fell apart this time and it never has before. Now I got to totally move my strategy around to kind of defend over there. So I don't see... It's one of those weird things where, like, I can't imagine the game without it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure, like, absolutely. It is, it is the, it's the exact design choice they needed and wanted to make. That being said, like you said, some people are going to hate it, and especially the action wasting. I think that is a really good thing to put out there. Like, you might try to forage, you might charge into a combat you should win, and, like, totally lose or totally waste your ammo. So as long as you go in eyes open, for me, it's not a real negative, but it could be. Yeah, the supplies, I think, bothered me more than the fighting part. Yeah, you're going to go in and sometimes you're just going to get slaughtered. That might bother people more. Um, And even after you do your fight, you roll to see whether your hero survives or not if you took enough wounds. Yep. Enough wounds is two for your hero characters in most situations. So it's not even like you got to take a, you know, you have one bad combat. One of your heroes can be just killed right out. And then you roll and on again, a four plus, your hero's alive. And on one to three, he's dead. You know, so or he or she. Yep. So it's uh, yeah. There's definitely a lot of rolling in the game, but I agree with you 100. Cinematically, it feels really good to me because of that. All right, so let me get to my number two then, uh, and that's the event cards and the enemy AI. And again, it's a pro and a con. All of these have been mixed for me, and it's really weird. And you'll hear this in my final thoughts too. So I really like the fact that you flip over an event card and literally it goes through the phases. It says, this is what happens in the 4R phase. It tells you this is how you get infected this phase. It tells you this is how much you have to eat. It tells you what happens on the Zed's phase. It tells you how many activations you get for your turn. And during one of those phases, something will happen. So it'll go over like special things, which makes every card feel really unique. And it does feel that way. So I really like that. And I really like that it kind of guides you through everything. But it's still a lot, and especially with the special events that happen. So I really like the way they do this event phase, but it's also one of my things that makes me not want to play the game as much, is how much time is not you taking actions. And it's not like you have five events in the game. Typically, the game is like 26 or 27 turns. By the time I'm nine turns in, I feel like I've played for an hour already. I like the way the event cards are laid out, but I do feel like a lot of the turn structure is not me making actions. A lot of it is stuff happening. Zed's moving. Yes, I'm fighting combat and I've set up my defense in certain ways. And so I'm kind of watching it play out how that happens. And, you know, it's kind of cool to see zombies do random things that you weren't expecting. And maybe you make an infection roll and bad guys come on the board and then they're attacking you in places you weren't expecting. But at the same time, it's still a lot of things going on that I am not in control of. So, I think it's good and bad. Again, some people are going to really love this. It feels really cinematic because of it. But of the five different things that are going on on them, basically you're in control of one of them, which is your actions. So that's my number two, which is the event cards in the enemy AI. Man, so you're sure you didn't like watch my video review and uh, take some notes, right? <laughs> no, I did not. I did not watch it. Yeah, I mean, again, that, that's that's my number one. And it sounds like my number three is your number one. So we had a lot of doubling on this list, having never actually played the game cooperatively together. Yeah, uh, the event cards. Uh, again, you pretty much said all of the key things I was going to say. A lot of it is kind of out of your hands. I think the format is genius. I think it really walks you through things really clearly. But people are going to feel, and it sounds like you were kind of on this side, some people are going to feel like it's 
kind of a lot of busy work and sort of going through the motions for the AI before you get to kind of do your stuff. For me, the the cinematic feel of the event cards and that huge variety in what happens and kind of the fun of seeing the new insanity the zombies are throwing at me, that won me over and the clean like design and the way that you kind of progress through it. And also, you know, I mean, I'm playing coin games right now. Like, <laughs> right. for me as a gamer, this is a low level of having to, like, run some stuff that is not in my control. But some gamers, again, are not going to like that as much. So I guess it kind of ends up being a mix for me, but definitely a mix-leaning pro. And for you, Peter, it sounds like maybe just a pure mix or a mix-leaning con. Yes, definitely. I mean, I, I agree with you, though. I agree with everything you just said. I agree with the genius of it. I agree with how cinematic it feels because of it. This game, if you want to, if I'm going to say it, we're not in final thoughts yet because I still have my number one to go. This might be the best zombie game I've ever played. Oh, it, it's it's without a doubt. Well, I mean, it it depends on what you're going for. Like there are some zombie games that focus more on the the humans disagreeing with each other, which actually in most zombie movies, as kind of a film buff and a zombie movie lover, is like the true kind of focus of zombie movies usually, like how the group falls apart not uh, the zombies themselves. Sure. But in terms of, like, fighting zombies and, like, survive the zombie horde where, like, everyone gets along sort of movies, far and away, this is the best one ever I've ever played. Yeah, and it feels like that. but And that's partially because of my number one, which is the characters. You know, you talked about characters at three. I think, for me, the characters are the thing that stands out. And I agree with you. Those combinations of characters you can have... I, so I didn't realize the horse was an expansion character. My other favorite character, which I've taken literally every time I played, is her name is Bounding Betty, but I call her Bouncing Betty because she continues to have to fight. She's the hand-to-hand oh, yeah. <laughs> crazy person where she goes in and fights and fights and fights until she dies, basically, gets sent back to the hospital, and she's very likely, I've actually never had her die because you roll two dice to see if she survives. She survived every time for me. And then she goes right back out in two turns and does it again. So I call her Bouncing Betty because she keeps bouncing back and forth to the hospital. And I had one game where I had the horse and I had her. And the horse means that you don't actually increase infection rate when you're fighting in hand-to-hand. I'm getting into specifics of rules here, but bottom line is it's not bad for you to fight hand-to-hand where typically it might be. And so, I, man, I just had so much fun sending her on the horse, killing a bunch of crap, getting her killed, and then doing it again two turns again. So... um Yes, the combinations of stuff you can build here. Now, I will say one of the negatives for me is that you don't kind of control your own character. You're in charge of everybody on the board, and that got back to an earlier point we have. But also, each character has a lot of stuff on them, which makes them feel so unique and so different. But there's a lot on each card. And so if I'm playing it solo specifically or at a low player count then there's a lot for me to remember not only about my character, but about every character in the game. Now, again, the way the game eases you into it, typically you're going to be playing with that character for a long time. As I said earlier, there's lots of rounds to the game. So you do kind of get used to them as you played. And then sometimes they'll introduce characters in the middle of the game. But that's okay too, because again, you're only introducing one new character. But also you get to know these people over time and you can pick your favorite one too. So it's a lot of bookkeeping up front like if I was new to this game and especially if you're starting at higher difficulties I remember my first time I'm just looking down these four different character sheets plus you get heroic civilians as well and just the amount of information was overwhelming for me but then you realize on most turns you're like oh they're attacking from the highway track well 
who's on the highway track or who can I get to the highway track quickly? Let me just focus on those couple characters. And so I learned to parse the information where I didn't really have to focus on the whole board. But certainly when you first sit down and look at all these characters, it's like, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into? And especially <laughs> you know, between that and the five rule books, when you look at that, you're like five rule books. And then each character has like five special powers. I was just like, what did Mike send me? Like, what is going on here? But, you know, it all comes together pretty well, pretty quickly. So, I mean, I'll just finish my final thoughts while I'm here. You've heard most of them already. I really think this is the best zombie game I've played. I like the combat system in it. Everything flows together well. The downtime bothers me. The downtime really bothers me. And it's the reason that I'm going to have a hard time getting it to the table. The best way I found to play the game for me, and this might change also because I've only played it two players max. I mean, the pandemic has something to do with this. If we had four players and everybody kind of had their own character, I might be better off with that where everybody kind of knew their own special powers, but it's still a long game. 27 turns is a lot or however many it ends up being. And that's my other problem with the increasing complexity. It increases the length of the game, basically every mission you go in over and over. So the way I've enjoyed this game best has been solo. And what I'll do is I'll set it up on the table. And I know a lot of solo players will do this and I'll come in and I'll play two or three turns. Maybe I'll play eight turns and then I'll go away and do something else. And it is kind of a, I do get that sieve one more turn feeling to it. So sometimes I plan on sitting down for one turn and I ended up doing eight to 10 turns, but I do think it's hard to kind of sit down and do it all as one experience. At least I had difficulty doing that. So my final thoughts are, I definitely think you should try it. If you're a solo player, I definitely think you should check it out. I'm not sure about higher player counts. I think I might like that better, but again, you're not controlling your own character. So I don't know. I don't know how that would feel with, with too many players. Two players felt fine. And yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with you. And I think that kind of brings up, this one's going to depend a lot on the type of gamer you are. Uh, clearly, if you hate randomness, stay away from this one. And I, I think it's definitely built for solo gamers. And I think they're the ones who are going to enjoy it the most. Uh, that's how I played it mostly. And solo gamers who have played, you know, kind of been around the block with solo games aren't going to mind the downtime as much. I think many of them, it won't seem as complex. But yeah, for me personally, this is one of my favorite games of the year. Like this game is tons of fun. It's a theme I love. And like Peter said, I think it's one of the finest games ever made within that theme. So that just kind of pushes it even higher for me. But I know some people won't enjoy it. And I do think it's better with the little expansions, uh, just for more characters. Uh, Peter, literally both of the characters you named, the horse and uh, Bouncing Betty or whatever her real name is. Bounding Betty they're is both, her real they're, name. They're, yeah, yeah, they're both expansion characters. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. I was like trying to look something up in the rulebook, and I'm like, wait a minute, where is it? I'm like, oh, it's in this little foldout rulebook, which is expansion. Yep. Oh, by the way, yeah, so too many expansions. What do you have, four more rulebooks in there? Like mini foldout pamphlet rulebooks. I mean, but. they're not rulebooks. They're just like, <laughs> hey, if you need clarification, like I, I find all those characters pretty clear, but if you need like some clarifications, yeah, it's in there. But yeah, I mean, I, I think this game is amazing. Definitely try it, but it's not going to be great for some of you. And you kind of need to be in there for the cinematic ride for like the wacky twists and turns the game can take for rolling the two and having your best character die when you didn't expect them to. Like if that sounds like fun to you with any zombie kind of uh, survival game, this might be awesome for you. If it sounds like the worst, <laughs> then stay far away. Well, and I'll say even with all the swinginess and luck and stuff, I never had a game that just went completely off the rails and I felt like it was over in turn two or three. Right. Sometimes you have games like this where just 
The cone of possibilities is so big that you feel like you don't even have a chance. Here, even with losing actions, stuff like that, every game's been really close and come down to the end. I mean, or, or I blew it away. Like, there, there never has been, like, a bad loss for me. Like, I was like, oh, if only this didn't happen, I wouldn't have lost. I haven't experienced that. Maybe you have. Well, and it does, uh, one of our previous kind of recent design discussions on, uh, like, the distribution of good things and bad things for the players... They definitely have here uh, kind of the, the positive events that crop up every once in a while. Like, it's mostly terrible, <laughs> you know? Right. Like, more zombies or terrible things happening. But then you get an entirely new hero, or you get, yep. like, a ton of ammo for free. And, and, like, definitely, again, within kind of the cinematic exciting thing, it's like those turns, even if you're losing, it's like, yes, I have a chance, you know? <laughs> so, yep. no, I, I'm with you. I, I never... And also, there's just so many die rolls. You know what I mean? Like, it is one yep. of those things where the randomness, yes, some of them are more important. If you lose your key here, like, on the first round, good lord, good luck. <laughs> you know, but there's just so many die rolls across the course of the game that I think it does tend to balance out. Sure. Well, so I think a very positive review from both of us. I don't know that I would have bought this one, but I am very, very happy that I played it. And I'll be happy to borrow it from you again in the future. I, I really do have fun playing it. But similar to Spirit Island for me, it can get to be too much at points. Well, and, and, and I'm really looking forward to playing with you, Peter, because you know me. Like, I'll run all that drudgery. <laughs> I mean, it's not really drudgery, but all the right. stuff on the event cards. And you know, I'll do it probably twice as fast as you would. <laughs> sure. And you'll get back to your actions that much faster. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah, no, I love the cinematics of it. And we're repeating ourselves now. So I think it's, that means it's time for the design discussion. Yeah, so we're going to talk about rulebook organization and how many rulebooks. I think that's kind of like the key question of today's design discussion. All of our design games have definitely had one rulebook. Well, I guess actually uh, spare parts are one of our current designs. I guess that would probably be two rulebooks unless we just kind of shoved the uh, the second mode of play in the same rulebook. Well, but that's an expansion. Well, that's true. That's true. So I guess that's sort of a different thing. Although I guess it's also not because, you know, we can look at uh, one that you really enjoyed the rule book of. And I, I you kind of won me over with your argument. That was Planet Apocalypse. Yep. Where they put all the rule books in one, even the expansion rule books. Yeah, no, I totally love that. Even though it's kind of upselling you on stuff. If you're doing all the games at the same time with the expansions and Kickstarter has led to that. I totally like the one rule book option. So but but I guess before we get into too many discussions here. So from one to 500, what is your preferred number of rule books? So it, it depends a lot on the game. I mean, some games just don't need more than one rule book. Sure. And Dawn of the Zeds, I think, has enough complexity in the things that I think two was probably right. I'll say for kind of my average, the game that I love the most, like midweight, some complexity, some crunchiness, I like two rule books. I know some people hate it, but I'm a big fan of the recent Fantasy Flight. Teach me how to play the game. Let me get it to the table in the minimum time possible rule book. And then give me everything organized in a clear way with a nice index. You know what I mean? And, yep. and Fantasy Flight, I don't know if I love the way they do their second rule book. But I am that kind of rule book nerd who will read through the entire rules references. Kind of like look for weird things that I missed. And just kind of make sure I have it all down. See, that's interesting. I never do that, but I love Fantasy Flight the way they do it. And because I can look at the index in the back of that and I go, oh, all right, this is what that rule is going to be under. And I can look it up. 
And if there's nothing else in today's design discussion for those uh, board game companies out there, make a dang index for your rule book. Yes. I mean, I can say please. from experience, our most complicated game that we're designing right now, and it's got a fair number of rules. I made a decent index for it in like 20 minutes of work. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? And here's the other thing I want in every rule book, and you might not agree with this. On the back of the rulebook, and Dawn of the Zeds does this on the starter rulebook, I want a turn breakdown. Tell me, and I would love, if you got room for it, a setup breakdown as well. Just some kind of quick reference on the back with the most complicated stuff in the game, the things I'm going to need to look up the most. I want all that on the back of the rulebook in one quick reference page. Yeah, yeah. and for me, I don't care if it's on the back of the rulebook or if it's a separate sheet. But the thing I hate, and I've seen this in a few of the games I've covered recently... Don't put something key to the dang game in the inside of the rule book. And then I would have to flip open to a chart <laughs> that you could have put yes. somewhere else, you know, like 20 times during the game. And Dawn of the Zeds does that too. On your player aid has the combat resolution tables and it has the turn breakdown. Not only is it on the back of the rule book, but it's also on your individual player aid. That's great. Like, I don't know that the game would have been playable without those things for me. Yes. No, it, it's, it would certainly be a much higher barrier of entry. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. So, so there you go. That's our kind of, like, must-haves. And unless you are a one-man company where you don't know how to write rule books and you can't find someone else to do it for you, put an index in your rule book. <laughs> Just to state that a second time. Because I know from experience, it is not as hard as it seems. Get, you know, get, get people who are helping you out or playtesters to do it if you can't. Just do it. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's the thing about the two rulebook format. You can have the rules written because there are two times you need the rules. You need it when you're learning how to play the game and you need it when you're looking to reference a rule. And those two things are typically in contrast to each other. You want to learn a game and when you're writing a rulebook, you have to write it in such a way where you do things in logical order, right? Setup goes here. Then what do I do on my turn? You kind of do a basic turn overview is typically the next thing. Well, goals of the game need to be in there somewhere too. Typically either right before or right after setup. And then you kind of go into details on what you do in each phase of the game. And then if you have special exceptions and stuff, you can put all that stuff in the back or sometimes I've seen it in the front too. But that's kind of the general layout of a rule book. And that is really good for learning a game. What it is not always best for is looking something up. Because it's like, okay, do I need the attack dice information in player phase or enemy phase or is it in both phases right you know like how do these combat dice work what do i do like if i'm defeated or they're defeated well, looking that up there is not always the easiest and that's why the two rulebook system i think you and i like a lot because the second rulebook is typically something that's really good and easy to reference and so that's the other time you're going to need the rulebook. So you need to learn how to play the game, and you need the rulebook that's going to help you to reference in the middle of the game. And that A to Z's rulebook does that really well, and Fantasy Flight's second rulebooks do that really well, too. Yeah, and if you... I mean, you shouldn't have to choose. You should be able to do both things to some extent. But if you had to choose, I guess I would lean towards the learn-to-play being the more important part of things. Because I've played a few games recently where... Oh my gosh, for some reason, like they didn't have a setup section. It was spread out among other sections. <laughs> oh God, that's and it's sick. like, can I just play your game, please? <laughs> can you just tell me what I'm supposed to do? Uh, a recent example of this, and I, and I complained about the rulebook in my review of it, although I really like the game otherwise, is uh, Warfighter. And this is an interesting one to kind of compare to uh, Planet Apocalypse. 
So Warfighter is this huge series at this point, and they're going to keep expanding it. They want to add, like, I think they're adding a fantasy Warfighter Kickstarter this uh, this year. So you can have, like, World War II soldiers against fantasy people with swords, which is awesome. And uh, a, an admirable goal they've done, they've set for themselves, is with each new edition, they have a complete rulebook that has every rule for everything. And I'm not just talking, like, each of the, you know, at this point, I think four or five core sets... I'm talking every mini expansion. They have like 80,000 mini expansions for Warfighter. Oh my gosh. And not all of them have like new rules, uh, but some of them do. And I, I get it. I get it from like kind of a financial standpoint. They can't have like a little rule book in each of those 80 expansions. And it would be a nightmare to kind of like keep track of all those anyway. So I kind of like the fact that they're combining things, but they did it in like a, <laughs> a haphazard fashion to say it kindly. Cause they don't really have setup in its own section. Like what they should do is like, here's the core game. Here's how to play the core game. And then, you know, section it out for other things. Like, Hey, if you're playing with this, do this. If you're playing with that, do this. But instead they're like, Hey, here's what a mission is, which is a key thing you need to know. And they're like, and here's what a mission is in this expansion. Here's what a mission is in this expansion. And like 10 pages later, they're like, Hey, by the way, here's the next thing you need to do in setup. And I'm like, what? <laughs> What am right. I supposed to skip? And what am I not supposed to skip? Like, Well, that's the way Dawn of the Zed's A to Z's rulebook is, too. It's really good because they have the index in the back, so you can find what you're looking for. But they definitely go, if you're playing Mission 1, do this. If you're playing Mission 2, do this. If you're playing Mission 3, do this. And it's all, like, in that setup section. Right, but they have another rulebook. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> this one, yes. This, this is all you get with Warfighter. That, that's right. it. <laughs> right. And I mean, in theory, I like the one rulebook option because that's the one thing that drives me crazy when you get expansions for a game is now I got to figure out how to put this expansion in the game I already have. And they're like, change setup rules 15, 16, and 17. No, look, if you're changing more than one setup rule, rewrite the whole dang setup and just say, this is how you set up this game. Yeah. Like, I hate when they're like, change these three steps, but everything else is the same. No, just re-give me a whole new setup. If you want to highlight the ones, the parts that are changed, great. But like, I don't want to have to bounce back and forth, right? I don't want to get through nine sets of setup and then realize I needed to change steps six and seven, right? Because <laughs> I, I didn't go to the other rulebook fast enough. That drives me crazy with expansion rulebooks too. So I would say if you're doing an expansion for the game and enough of a section has changed, I would rewrite that whole section. Especially setup. Setup's the one that that seems to be most prevalent for this stuff. Um, the rest, you know, you can kind of say, all right, omit this and add this here. Usually, typically, unless you're redoing the way combat is done, then do a whole new combat section. You know what I mean? Like, if whatever rules you're majorly changing, I would rewrite the whole section from scratch. That way they don't have to bounce back and forth. It's like when you get to combat, come to this rulebook. Well, that's why my favorite expansion rulebooks have a new player aid on the back you know or like if they add a new board to the game they have a new order of play there so they kind of uh supersede the previous and of course that's going to be easier like warfighter i said has a million expansions and there's no need to like own all of them they don't kind of build on each other but if you look at something like spirit island or root where they're coming out with like one expansion every two to three years and who knows when they'll stop they might only have like two expansions total they can kind of assume that you're going to have, like, most of the previous ones and they kind of, like, build consistently, you know? I mean, Fantasy Flight is the biggest offender for me because, in all honesty, most games don't change wholehearted rule sections. Uh, Fantasy Flight definitely does. I mean, Civilization did that. Not the New Dawn one, but the old Civilization, Sid Meier's Civilization game. 
Star Wars Rebellion does that. They have a whole new combat system. So they're typically the only ones who wholeheartedly change systems in their games. Typically, that would just be a second edition or something like that. But it is kind of weird. What if for Civ, you own one of the expansions and not the other? What do you include in that rulebook? So yeah, that's a little bit weird too, because yes, it'd be nice to have a whole new player aid, but if they literally changed all the rules for one section, but you don't have that expansion, then you don't want the rules for that section changed and which ones do they put in. So yeah, I guess that's where it gets a little bit hard is when you've had multiple expansions that change core fundamental rules to the game. Well, yeah, and that gets into, this is a different design discussion entirely, but when do you let things lie and when do you errata? If it's only a minor improvement, do you just let it be for consistency? It, I mean, heck, even our design, Peter, uh, Dark Dealings, we changed uh, the way Solo works uh, in a pretty major way from like the first edition to the second edition of the game. The thing is, both are still valid and both are fun and they're going to appeal to different people. But, you know, we could be seen as kind of being flighty and wishy-washy on our own rules there. Well, yeah, and we, and we did put that freely available for everybody online, too. So that's the other part of it. It's like, hey, here's an official variant. If you want to play with this, go for it. And then when we re- reprinted the rulebook, it was in there, the way we changed it to, because the way we thought was better. Yeah, so rulebooks are tough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've written them, and so has Peter, and they are. Well, and here's the thing, just going to des- from a designer perspective real quick. One thing that you and I, I think an advantage we have working as a tandem is we send rule books back and forth 10, 15, 20 times. Like literally, I make a couple changes, send it back to you. Then you reread it to make sure that those changes flow with the rest of the document and you make some changes. You send it back to me, then I'll reread it again and make sure it still flows. And of course, after a while, you get tired of looking at the same thing. So you put it down for three months and then you look at it again in three months. Like, oh, how did we miss this rule? Or somebody points out, you know, during playtesting, oh, where's that rule? Oh, we forgot that one. And so I think it is an advantage to have more than one person looking at a rule book too. You know, whether that's an editor and the designer of the game or a developer and a designer, I think having that multiple person input really helps. Because certainly as a designer too, you forget a lot of rules because they're so ingrained in your brain. It should be obvious to everybody else, but clearly it's not because it's not stated anywhere in your rulebook. Yeah, and the biggest advice I'll give to especially beginning designers who are writing their own rulebook because they want to pitch it with at least a like draft rulebook, just pick a really established company whose rulebooks you find really useful and just copy <laughs> their format exactly and apply it to your game. For me, uh, whenever I write one of our rule books, my consistent kind of structure is the fantasy flight structure, generally speaking. I'm like, here are the components, here's setup, here's an overview of a round. Peter kind of already went through this. Here's an overview of the round, and here's how you win and lose. Here's specifics on each phase, and then here's kind of the grab bag of extra stuff and like chrome and details you need for other stuff. And then here's an index. Like, that's how I do all of our rule books. And I feel like, actually, whether or not you meant to do that, Peter, I think all our rules kind of end up that way. Like, that's sort of become our format, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, it makes the most sense to me when looking at a rule book, you know, because it, it kind of covers all the basics. And then if you have advanced rules, you can put them in the back, too. You know, Dawn of the Zeds, they have an advanced rule book. But you can go ahead and say, look, you know, a lot of rule books are doing this now. Stop. Stop reading here. Even Gloomhaven, the new Gloomhaven. Stop reading here. This is all you need for the first mission. 
Now we're going to cover special exceptions going into the next section, or we're going to add a little bit more complexity here. That's fine. I don't mind that as well. Now, in a situation like that, I do like a rules index or an A to Z book or whatever else. Again, just so I can see everything in one place, but I don't mind learning it piecemeal too. And I think that's another trick. And we haven't really done this too much. Certainly Spare Parts has that in there, but I do like having a breaking point. Okay, this is a 40-page rule book, but really I'm only reading 10 pages to learn how to play the game. Yeah, and just to repeat it one more time, even though it doesn't really apply as much to this one, it was in our previous uh, discussion on rule books. Please blind playtest your rule books. <laughs> and give it to someone who's never played the game before, who hasn't seen you play the game, and to say, read this and play the game. And try to watch them, have them record themselves, or at least give you feedback, and then fix it. Because let's not have any more broken rule books out there, people. And they're, you know, the board game community is incredibly generous. Even a beginner designer, your first game, you can probably jump on our Slack. Somebody there will help you. You can find somebody who will read through your rule book, try to play your game, and tell you why they couldn't. <laughs> so yeah. avail yourself of those resources. Don't just assume that you're all by yourself and then make a game that's unplayable. Well, yeah. I mean, you can go to BGG. You can go to our Slack. You know, there. I'm sure there's Facebook groups for it, too, where you can just show your rule book to somebody, even if they never play the game. Like, do they even understand how they could play your game? And certainly having them play it is way, way better. But even if it's just more sets of eyes looking on it, the more sets of eyes you can have on a rule book, the better, for sure. All right. So thanks for listening to another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Uh, go try out Dawn of the Zed's third edition. We both liked it. And uh, yeah, go read some good rule books, I guess. And we didn't have many funny bloopers. So what I want to do is an after show here on Dawn of the Zed's versus Planet Apocalypse versus uh, what's your other favorite one, Chip Theory one? Wait, uh, Too Many Bones or Cloudspire? Cloudspire. All these tower defense games. So let's have a quick discussion ah. on what we think about tower defense games right quick after the credits here. All right. Thanks, everybody. And we'll see you at the next stop. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Please check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. If you want to reach out to us, the best place to talk to us all is on the Slack. See the show notes for details. Also, you can support us on Patreon. Check out patreon.com slash one stop. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week with another Top 5 list. All right, so Mike, you like these tower defense games, obviously, yeah. like Dawn of Zed's, Cloudspire, Planet Apocalypse was a good one, too. So what are your thoughts? If you had to pick one or maybe different ones for different audiences, what are your thoughts? Well, so here's the first thing, because I didn't really think about this, and you're just springing this on me, but... I don't think any of those three games, the fact that they are tower defense most appeals to me. And I've certainly played tower defense games that I was meh on, like uh, Castle Panic. Sure. Yep. But they each have other things that really like I like. Well, and, and the first thing I'll kind of go into is um, the variety of the people you control. Okay. So uh, another tower defense game I didn't like. You didn't even play this one, Peter, because I was so mad on it. And I just sent it on as quickly as I could. I actually sent it back to the publisher because I felt bad. Uh, that's a uh, defense grid, which I did a uh, I think a playthrough of maybe a, maybe a review. I can't remember, but yeah, defense grid, which is based on the uh, tower defense video game. Like the the variety in the towers felt so limited, and they all did such similar things, and the enemies felt similar enough. I was like, this is the same thing every time I play.
Sure. So that's going to kill a game for me, you know. And, and I guess Castle Panic is sort of the same thing because it's it's just a family weight game, and of course, well, it's going to be an apocalypse base game. We had the same issue with right. There was a limited right. amount of replay in that base game. But at least Planet Apocalypse was saved kind of by the heroes. And Cloudspire, I love the asymmetric, like, different factions. And, you know, here, you're number one and my number three, the heroes. And and this, I mean, I would say Dawn of the Zeds might do the best job of having variety because everything in it kind of gives a varied experience. So, yeah, for, for me, it's not necessarily about tower defense. I don't find tower defense, like, to be one of my favorite kind of genres as a rule. I don't like a lot of them. Whereas, like, most deck builders I at least enjoy. Some tower defense games don't work for me at all. But all three of these have, uh, and maybe Planet Apocalypse a little bit less, unless you buy a lot of expansions. All of them have, like, nice variety to the play and some kind of cool uh, differences in the characters you control. Yeah. And actually, Xenoshift is another one. I don't know if you, I don't remember if you played that one or not. Yeah, yeah, no. I've only, I haven't played uh, Dreadmire, but I've uh, played the original only in app form, I believe. So I never had to, like, actually shuffle the cards. Okay, and I like Xenoshift a lot, actually. Maybe even more than... I mean, Cloudspire was too much for me. You know me. I mean, I complained about Dawn of the Zeds like, having all these difficulty levels, but at least I could find one that worked for me. Whereas Cloudspire, even at its most basic, like there was no basic level. It was just a lot going on for me. Sure. No, I, mean, I, 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 I admit that freely. Like... <laughs> even more like i really like too many bones i really like cloudspire um, i really like hoplomachus cloudspire is one i'm like well maybe you'll like it i don't really know let me try it with you first <laughs> sure and yeah so for me that's at the bottom i mean donna zen's it's such a hard one for me to place because i did like planet apocalypse and i i bought two expansions that's how much i liked it i have not played those yet i actually talked to nick and i'm like we have to play this over the next couple of days and i don't know if that was spurred by dawn of the zeds or whether it was just spurred by hey i got this game sitting here that we haven't played yet but uh it's hard for me to decide right now i'm leaning toward planet apocalypse over dawn of the zeds even though i think dawn of the zeds is probably a way better game i mean in all in all honesty in every definition of it well, but it's less streamlined, and I think, exactly. especially if you're going to play it with Nick, and Planet Apocalypse has more, like, true co-op in the way most people think of it. So between those two things, I, I would say Planet Apocalypse should be higher for you. Dawn of the Zeds is clearly going to win for me between those two. Yep. Uh, it's, it's, it's gonna, it would kind of be fighting for Cloudspire. I'm not sure which one would emerge from that fight. Yeah, it's funny. We have these kind of reversed in our order here, but it's just the kind of gamer you are. And, I mean, I think that's one thing our podcast provides is value seeing both ends of things i'm definitely on the lighter end the mind and and just one have been game of the year for me over the last couple years so certainly i lean toward lighter things that i think have longer longevity you're more of the heavier gamer and you like things that are a little bit more crunchy and and test your mental acuity more and you know for me that just fries my brain sure (laughs) all right so for you it's cloudspire or dawn of the zeds at the top are we saying of all or just of those three? Well, of all these tower defense type. Oh my gosh. I don't know, because isn't Battle for Greyport tower defense in a way? Yeah, no, I don't know if I'd put that or... I mean, that to me is more similar to Aeon's End. Yeah, I think a card game... I think you need to have a board. I guess uh, Xenoshift does have the line of aliens coming towards you, but in the end, it's still basically a card game. Like, I wouldn't say it's much different than Battle for Greyport. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right, because, yeah, Battlefield Greyport has the guys in front of you. So, yeah, maybe Xenoshift was a bad example. All right, so just of these three games, then. Okay, of these three, Planet Apocalypse, certainly the bottom one. And it's not because I don't like the game. I think it's a great design. I just, 
I, I need to play with you the expansions you bought. <laughs> and then, uh, okay, if I had to choose, let's go with uh, Cloud Spire slightly above uh, Dawn of the Zeds for me. Partially because I like that one solo, co-op, and competitive, whereas I think Dawn of the Zeds, I definitely prefer solo. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, and I do think it's probably best that way, Dawn of the Zeds. All right, so some extra bonus content for everybody. Thanks for joining us. Bye, everybody. Hey, Mike. Yeah. I have to defend my basement from crickets and frogs and mice. Dude, it's so funny. I'm in my basement, and I literally had, like, a creepy crawly go by me during recording, and I couldn't kill it because I was, you know, in, in headphones in front of the microphone. Oh, yeah, I had a spider that one day. <laughs> we got that one. Oh, that's right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, see, I, I didn't freak out and put it in the podcast. I kept my cool. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't handle those kind of things well. One night I had a uh, snake down here. It was tiny. I mean, literally barely bigger than a worm. And I w- went upstairs and woke my wife up. I'm like, you got to deal with the snake in the basement. <laughs> like, she's like, oh, we'll get it in the morning. I'm like, it's not going to be sitting there in the morning and I'm not going to have a snake in my basement. I will never come <laughs> down here again, ever in my life. No way. Done. <laughs> 